Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, you're listening to Great Women in Compliance on the Compliance Podcast Network with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and today we have my first two-part interview where I'm speaking with Mary Gentile. Um, She is the creator of Giving Voice to Values, and we talked a lot last week's episode about um, the approach to values-driven leadership and generally how it works in the workplace and the history of it. Um, If you've missed that episode, you should go back and listen, not just because it's fascinating, but you get to hear a lot about Mary's background, which is just so much and so wonderful. Um, And we are so glad that she's here. Um, And with that, we talked a bit last week about um, the, you know, again, the big picture and the giving voice to values program that she created. Um, And today we're going to talk a little more about it in some specifics about businesses, organizations, and how we can use these concepts as ethics and compliance officers or attorneys on a day-to-day basis to really impact um, our organizations. And also, she can let us know, Mary has some tremendous resources on her website um, and reaching out to her directly about that as well. Um, So thank you for coming back. And My pleasure. And so I think right now, we we ended up talking a little bit about the the, sort of the boiling down three questions of the, what are we, what if I were going to act on my values, what would I say and do, and how could I be most effective? And that's a, you know, I'm just using that as a starting point. Um, to talk about how do you help businesses and organizations either understand those questions or the value, you know, the values-driven leadership um, philosophy. So how do you kind of do that in a practical way? Sure. So, you know, as, 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 as I was talking about last time when we spoke, I really created Giving Voice to Values, or GVV, for use in graduate business education in an academic context. And it never really occurred to me that I'd be taking it to organizations. And, it, you know, I never actually marketed it in that way. But, but companies, I guess, heard about it maybe when the book came out from, from Yale Press and, um, and they started approaching me. So I really was quite candid with companies when they came to me and they said, I don't know if this is going to be helpful in your setting. You know, I'm, I'm, a professor, you know, and I, I think it's going to work really well in the classroom. But, you know, if you want to go on this journey with me, <laughs> you know, we can experiment. And so that ended up working out really well because it, what it allowed me to do is to not say, I have this solution and this is the way you need to implement it. Because what I found is that the approach itself, the, the fundamental reframe in giving voice to values, which is instead of just focusing on deciding what's right, we actually get people to rehearse and pre-script and practice how to get the right thing done. That fundamental flip can be delivered in many ways. So when I was working with smaller organizations, <clears throat> it might mean you know, uh, training an individual within the organization so he or she could deliver this throughout. Um, or it, with some larger organizations, it, it might have meant um, working with them on the on the um, um, uh, online resources that we've developed, um, especially when organizations are global and are spread out all over, so that then when they do come together in person, which I always think is an important component of this, 
you can use that precious and often very limited in-person time to go much further and faster um, because they've already been introduced to some of the foundational concepts and even practice with them using some of our online resources. Um, some settings, uh, you know, it was a matter of train the trainer within the organization. In some settings, um, you know, I actually de delivered programs, you know, um, in, in we all, we almost always customize the resources. I mean, there's hundreds of scenarios and cases and exercises and readings that are available through the Giving Voice to Values curriculum website. But um, when I work with individual companies, they usually want to, you know, develop scenarios that are specific and proprietary to them, you know. So when I worked with Unilever in Nigeria, you know, I went to Lagos to gather examples that were both Nigeria-specific and Unilever's, um, you know, commercial products business-specific. Um, you know, when we when we worked with McKinsey's leadership, we identified leadership challenges that that partners would encounter um, in that context. Um, you know, we've we've um, also uh, translated a, a lot of the online resources into different languages so that folks can um, work with them in that way. Right now I'm working with KPMG and we're developing, uh, you know, we did an introductory online training, you know, in the, in the time of COVID, but now we're doing a lot of follow-on work with them so that the employees can go into more depth now that they've been introduced to the GVV concepts. We're um, developing, uh, we're actually going to be developing uh, this, 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 uh, fiscal year, um, a series of application conversations with um, participants in the different practices where we apply GVV to the different kinds of settings that they deal with. When we work with the U.S. military, uh, one of the things we did with the U.S. Army is the Army has something called SHARP, which is the Sexual Harassment um, Assault Resources and Prevention Group. And so we <clears throat> presented the approach and then the scenarios we applied it to were um, military-based um, uh, sorts of experiences that where you are either the victim or a bystander around some sort of workplace harassment. And we talked about, you know, giving people the opportunity to pre-script and rehearse that. So we, we change it up, you know, we have a actually a Giving Voice to Values book series that uh, comes out through Rutledge Publishing in the UK. And, you know, we've got uh, books on applying GVV to corporate governance. There's one coming out just in a couple months on that topic. And we've got um, uh, several that have to do with GVV in a legal context, legal education and legal practice. Uh, we've got another one that's around GVV in um for physicians. So, you know, we, we customize this for the, for the audiences. Some of the or organizations I've worked with are large and, you know, they, they really uh, want to do something that's more in depth. Like Lockheed Martin has a, a, a an award-winning uh, video training program they've had for years, but they've adapted it to build in this GVV focus, which focuses on, how do you voice and act in these situations as opposed to simply identifying where the potential transgressions are? You know, so some of them are, 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 are quite large in that way. Other organizations have, have done it in a much more, you know, um, individual to individual uh, approach. So 
I don't know if that begins to answer your question, but there's just as many ways as there are organizations. (laughs) Exactly, because I think one of the things that you've highlighted, and actually had two points I wanted to follow up on with you. One is the most important thing is making sure, I think for all of us, that you, you do tailor what you're doing to the people that you're working with, to what level you do that obviously is can be based on both resources and your organization. But I do think that that, you know, comes back to one of the challenges of some of the more old school training or working is that, you know, you, you give everybody a program and expect them to, you know, think about it. it, it like you said earlier uh, and let in the earlier session that you, you know what the right answer is supposed to be, whether that's your answer or not, you're, you're going to put the right one down. Um, right. Tailoring that to what you're doing. I mean, that was in, I, when I was in law school. I mean, I remember the, you know, the ethics courses, you, you, the answer to the question you know, in my ethics course was always, you know, the most, it was almost always, you know, the most complicated, go to the government right away type answer. Um, You know, because (laughs) that's what you, ethically, if it's going wrong, you're going to correct it. I mean, I'm dating myself somewhat, but it's something that's (laughs) worth keeping in mind. Um, But what the other thing that you mentioned that I just would like to ask about briefly is right now in this COVID era, the online and of changing other things, um, can, you know, have you seen any sort of changes in philosophy or, you know, approach that would be important because we're now in a very different environment? Because you mentioned, you know, it's always good to be effective in person and to be able to do different things, but that's been taken away from people. Have you seen anything about COVID right now? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I think... I think that what COVID has done is sort of forced us to be more creative in addressing what was already a pressure. So in other words, I would often, if it was a larger organization than a global organization that would be interested in talking about this, they would they would say, but we can't do anything in, per- in person. And so there was kind of a, a, a challenge there. And, you know, we did develop online programs, but COVID has, has helped us to go further. So let me give you a couple of examples. We did already and still have um, a, a really, I think, uh, sophisticated and high quality online interactive program that is social cohort based. So in other words, uh, you know, we do have a MOOC through Coursera, which is, you know, just the individual learner, but, but the, the, the um, social cohort based learning is through a company called Nomadic. And the idea there is that you can work with a team of people who are in your organization and you're actually you're actually interacting around GVB style scenarios, you're problem solving together, you're applying the experiences together. So that's beginning to be a way to practice with each other, that peer coaching piece. But even that always felt somewhat limited to me. Um, I always wanted to still follow that up with something in person. But what's interesting is now with, with COVID, I'm sure you all are doing the same thing. I've been doing, you know, all my programs online. And, um, you know, what, what we found is, you know, when you can actually break people into uh, breakout rooms online where they're, they're on screen and visual, um, you can kind of, sometimes the conversations feel even more intense um, because you're just right there looking at six other faces, <laughs> you know, and you're having these, you can still do that kind of peer coaching and, and group process before you come back and debrief in the larger group. But I had never tried to do it in that way 
prior to COVID because, you know, I was just insisted we would go in person after we did whatever the preparatory online work was. So I think it's actually in some ways pushed us to be able to do that um, more effectively. And the other thing that that enables is you can actually have conversations that are more, it used to be so much more expensive to have the conversations be truly cross-cultural, you know, with representative, if you're a global company, with representatives in the room together, you know, and now um, that has, you know, we're doing a lot more of that as well. Yeah, I think that that is, I mean, that is one plus on all of this. Um, I think, you know, I, I do personally think there is a, a minus, and I think those of us in ethics and compliance are also concerned with so many new normals at one time, how that impacts <laughs> the decision-making process um, for people. I mean, even best or worst of circumstances, it's it, it's always hard um, to make those decisions and, you know, to, to flip the thinking you're thinking about right now. But on the other hand, the ability to have no excuse to, to not be present, even if it's virtual, is a, um, is a real positive. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I've, you know, most of people who get into ethics and compliance, and even you, know, you, you were talking about it even with you at, at the beginning when you were doing business cases um, in our earlier episode, and you were talking about how you, you know, the, the making the right decisions and, and values and ethics were an important part of, for you in business. That's why most of us have gotten into ethics and compliance along the lines, I think. Um, part, part of our personal values very often are we want to do the right thing. So, We've talked about this a bit, but how do you um, help to get that message across, you know, to, to resonate, you know, this is why we do this and, and the individuals in the workforce's values and how do you know, how, how do you best make that resonate? I know that's, that's a huge question and it varies very, very much, but, you know, for us to bring sort of our personal commitment in a way that's valuable to, you know, our workforce without being either the department of no or, oh gosh, they're here. Is there, <laughs> you know, some kind of practical advice you would think about for that? Yeah. Well, so there's a couple of ways I, I think about that question. It's a great question. I mean, one of the ways is simply at the level of language. You know, you'll notice that I call it giving voice to values rather than giving voice to ethics. And part of the reason I do that is because, um, you know, people people will often think about ethics and when you actually define the word i mean it's it's a set of guidelines principles rules whatever code um that is often perceived to be external so there's you know medical ethics there's legal ethics there's business ethics um <coughs> excuse me um and so it's a it's a set of constraints right um, and what I've, uh, or limitations or boundaries, you know, and um, what I've seen in my work, both with, with graduate business students, you know, when I was at Harvard and, and Darden and Babson, but also when I work with practitioners in various industries is that, you know, folks who go into business, they're, they're not all that fond of constraints on action, basically People in general aren't, but, you know, usually these are folks who, who really are motivated in a kind of can-do sort of way. You know, they want to build enterprises. They want to develop products and services. They want to make money. They want to move up within the organization. And so it's not a very congenial um, a framework. It's always about limiting what I can do. And what I wanted to do was to help people think about behaving in a, in a values-driven and ethical way as, as something that was more aspirational, something that was coming from them, something that 
uh, was enabling them rather than to be limited to feel, as I said earlier, that they had more choices. And so part of part of the approach was simply shifting that, you know, where is this coming from? And so I talk about people aligning with their own values, you know, aligning the values of their organizations. And if you look at most organizational codes of conduct and, and, and value statements, you know, there's really, <laughs> I've never come across anything where there was a value that in itself, in and of itself was that objectionable. I mean, they're usually integrity, honesty, fairness, compassion, respect, you know, those kinds of things. And then, you know, some, some individualized things like, you know, Unilever had pioneering. Um, McKinsey has obligation to dissent, which worked really well with GBV. Um, so, you know, the first thing is that frame to have it be something that you're finding the way that this aligns with your own values rather than this being something that's imposed on you, you know? And then the, and then the second thing is that, you know, people often will assume that, that they're the only one or that no, you know, most people don't feel this way or that most people don't care about these things. And so we created an exercise in GVV. It's called the starting assumptions for giving voice to values. And it's just a list of, I forget, eight, 10 sort of very simple statements, things like, I want to act on my values. Um, I've done so in the past. I've failed to do so at other times in the past. I can get better at this. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, but I won't know that I'm not alone until I actually talk about it, you know, those kinds of things. And what we do is we'll share that list of assumptions with people and we'll say, what do you think? Are these true? <laughs> Are these false? Would you take some off? Would you add some? Would you change them? And and then after people have had that kind of, it's like an informed consent conversation. After they've had that conversation and they've been invited to to push back, to argue or to accept, then we'll basically conclude by saying, look, these are neither true nor false. You make them true if you behave as if they're true. You make them false if you behave as if they're false. And so what we're asking you to do for the, the Giving Voice to Values thought experiment is for the sake of this experience to behave as if you believe these were true. And the idea is there that you're giving people permission to try on an identity that they may feel like, I don't think this is possible. I don't want to be a sucker. I don't want to be taken advantage of. But you're actually giving them cover. You're giving them the assignment to think about, well, what if what if people wanted to do this? What if I could do this? And it frees them up to realize that they have more choices. So it starts to address that concern that you were sort of hinting at about how do you help people get in touch with wanting to do this? I think often people who who say they don't want to do it, it's because they, they just don't think it's possible and they don't want to set themselves up for defeat. I mean, that is absolutely, I mean, always a concern um, in what you were saying. Absolutely. You know, people don't want to set themselves up and people, you know, I think I always believe people are trying to really do their best in a complicated world. Um, right. Which it reminds me that when we talk about the world, you know, you're, giving voice to values is used throughout the world. Um, right. And is there any sort of global differences that you have seen to keep in mind? I mean, for example, in some cultures, I mean, and I, you know, where, where it's basically your deference, deference to leaders or to your manager is almost considered you know, what you're supposed to do in a value. So, I mean, 
I mean, I, we do always in this area talk a lot about, you know, raising concerns and speaking up, and that's a challenge. But I, I'm thinking about it even in sort of an earlier part of the mindset. So I was thinking about culture, what you see as culturally, you know, maybe just a couple things that, you know, you would sort of see as either pitfalls or really critical. Right. It's a great question. When I first created GVV, there were a number of, um, you know, folks, leaders in the field in the U.S. and in Western Europe who would say to me, Mary, this is interesting and, you know, it, it might actually be helpful here but it's not going to work in, and then they would fill in the blank. You know, it won't work in Asia. It won't work in Africa. It won't work in South America. It won't work in the Middle East or in Russia or where, you know, wherever their experience was. And I thought they might be right, right? <laughs> I didn't know, but I started getting invited to all of those places. I mean, GBV has now been used literally on all seven continents. And I found, um, you know, um, a, a real appetite for the approach, but I also found that there were um, a, a few things I needed to do to make it, to make it uh, uh, effective. Um, actually, I'll, I'll talk about it briefly now, but there's a very short little uh, blog post I did for Harvard Business Review online called Talking About Ethics Across Cultures. If you just Google that title in Gentilly, it'll come up. But what I learned is that I had to do a few things. First is, first of all, I had to acknowledge the context. So, you know, I couldn't come in and just pretend that in this country, which has very different laws or very different historical context or very different uh, political setting, that you could do things, you know, that it was just, you know, the same process that you would do in the US or in the UK or in Germany or something like that. So you acknowledge the reality as a context. But then the second thing you do is that you say, but I also know that, you know, despite the fact that you may have different challenges here than the ones I have in the U.S. or in Boston or whatever it is, we all have challenges, but they may be different. Uh, I also know that you do have values, you know, that you don't need me, Mary Gentilly, to come here you know, from the U.S. and tell you what values are. We, we actually know from the research that there's, you know, a set of values that are pretty much universal, you know, they're, they're, it's a short list and they're pretty high level, <laughs> but, but, uh, but the reality is that you have these values. You start from this position of respect, but I also know that given the context you operate in, the, the challenges to acting on those values may be different than the challenges that I face to act on those values in a different context. So you're, you're kind of establishing this position of respect, but you're also establishing this kind of common ground that, just because your context is different doesn't mean that you enjoy, you know, whatever the behavior we're trying to address is, whether it's corruption or, or, or any other kind of behavior. And then the third thing I do is I explain what I've already explained to you and your listeners, which is the GVB thought experiment. I let them know that we're going to look at scenarios and we're going to ask you what if you were this person who wanted to do what they believe the right thing to do was, how could they get it done? And, and that does a couple of things. It brings the stress down because they know they're not going to be put on the spot. What would you do? And, you know, then they get engaged in defending the behavior that they think is the only thing that's possible rather than thinking creatively about how to do something different. Um, so it brings it, that, that sort of stress down and allows them to be more creative. Then the fourth thing I do is I always try and have an example, if I can, of someone behaving um, um, on their values effectively in the culture I'm in, you know. So when I remember doing a program for entrepreneurs in, in India 
uh, and, and entrepreneurial educators. And we had a video case that I had collaborated with the Carnegie Council to produce that was, you know, an Indian entrepreneur who had um, turned a company around um, to make it both financially very successful, but also a model of clean operating. And he had resist, he had shifted the culture entirely around corruption. And so having that example, having examples within that context you're in, it does two things. It both triggers a sense of uh, pride. You know, this can happen here, you know, by, by one of us. But it also triggers a sense of competition, you know, <laughs> well, if he or she could do it, you know, I should be able to do this. And then the last thing is that I found that I have to make explicit that the voice in giving voice to values is a metaphor. Um, so you were talking, for example, about some cultures that are um, more, um, you know, authoritarian in, in their their um, interpersonal relationships and expectations. So I explained that the voice and giving voice to values does not mean telling off your boss. It doesn't mean that anywhere, <laughs> you know, um, but it, 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 it may mean asking questions. It might mean gathering some data and making sure that people see it. It might mean writing a memo. It might mean talking to someone who can talk to someone who can talk to the decision maker. It might mean trying to ensure that a different, someone who embodies a different perspective is included in the decision-making task force. It might mean looking at the person who makes this decision and figuring out what typically influences him or her. When have I ever seen them change their mind before? And how could I tap into that? It might mean building a set of allies, a kind of coalition. It might mean building a much more incremental process for systemic change. And we have cases that illustrate all of these different kinds of actions in the collection. And we explicitly try and have cases that um, show these behaviors happening in other parts of the world. A few years ago, we got funding from the United Nations Global Compact Prime to develop a series of 10 anti-corruption cases um, in India. Um, and uh, we also did a program in Cairo where we developed a, a set of, of cases collaborating with businesses and business school faculty uh, in Egypt. And, you know, I was just talking to a guy in Jordan this morning who wants to build this into his consulting and management leadership uh, training in Jordan and, and in the Middle East. We've worked with uh, some folks in Morocco who are translating some of the materials into Arabic and, and have a meeting next week with a woman who's translating some of it into French. And um, some of it's been translated into Russian. So we try, the book has been translated into Chinese. Uh, so we try and, um, you know, work with people who are in the different parts of the world that we're talking about so that they can, you know, have some of that cultural nuance in the way they talk about it. Uh, well, and before we close, I'm going to change to one other very important cultural nuance um, to me as a person who's very proud that she grew up in Buffalo, New York. And when I read ah. your bio, I saw that you received your uh, MA and your PhD at the University of Buffalo. So I have That's to right. ask. It's SUNY Buffalo is there SUNY for Buffalo. four years. Yeah, well, I mean, I have, I mean, I'm not going to talk about American football, but I am going to ask <laughs> if you have a favorite Buffalo food. Um, oh, well, beef on whack. <laughs> See? Exactly. Same with me. Um, you know, Anderson's beef on wax for me over Charlie the Butcher. Now, this is a very inside Buffalo conversation. But for any of you who have visited, you know, 
These I mean, people black- always think you're going to say, um, you know, buffalo, buffalo wings. And I like those too, but I was a fan of beef on whack. <laughs> yeah, me too. And then also the, the sponge candy. We do have some. Oh my God. That's my favorite candy. Yeah. Right. And then there's some really <laughs> good hot dogs. Candy. It's, it's a very, yeah, exactly. If you can yeah. see that it's a very, some of the food is very healthy, but no, oh, yes. beef on whack. <laughs> But so with that in mind, I think we've talked about all of, you know, so many significant issues and a very important American cultural issue, Buffalo, New York food. That's right. <laughs> and thank you so much for this and for taking the time um, with, with me and with our listeners. And on behalf of uh, both Mary and I, Compliance Podcast Network, CCI, and uh, the Sending the Elevator Back Down book that's coming out from the great women in compliance that I'd love to have you read. Mary, we'll get you a copy and um, fantastic. thank you so much for being here. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you so much, Lisa. And can I just tell people, if you're curious, just feel free to go to givingvoicetovalues.org or email me at the University of Virginia Darden. Absolutely. I Now I will not necessarily, if I don't end up putting that in the blurb both weeks, we will have it in here. So thank you okay, so great. much. I really appreciate your time and everybody that, those materials are fantastic. So thank you. Thanks. Have a great rest of the day. Okay. You too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of great women in compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.